0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 359. It's titled, Why Are There So Many Shortages? I recently read an essay by Kate Morgan in which she described that in 1904, a forester at the Bronx Zoo noticed that the American chestnut trees at the zoo were developing strange, spotty, orange-yellow patches. It was a fungus. William A. Merle examined it and published his findings a year later. By then, the disease had spread to New Jersey, Maryland, the District of Columbia, and Virginia. From 1904 to 1940, three and a half billion American chestnut trees died. It wiped it out across the eastern U.S. Later, scientists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture determined that the fungus arrived on ornamental Japanese chestnuts imported to the U.S. as early as 1876. At the beginning of the 20th century, the chestnut was used for a key source of wood. Timber, just using the American chestnut, was a multi-billion dollar industry adjusted for inflation. The American chestnut is huge. It's fast-growing. Typically, it's rot-resistant. It could be milled into cabin logs, furniture, fence posts, railroad ties. And it matured in about 20 years. And of course, you have the actual chestnut itself, chestnuts roasting over an open fire. But here was the disease that came and wiped out billions of trees. And even today, they've not been able to restore the American chestnut. They've tried crossbreeding it with the Chinese chestnuts, with Japanese chestnuts. They've tried genetic modification, but it still hasn't been restored. In some ways, the COVID-19 pandemic has been just as devastating as the American chestnut tree blight. March 2020, the last time I flew, we were in Ohio and Cincinnati. I was shocked to see the empty store shelves. So many products had been bought out. Then back in Arizona a few weeks later, it felt terrifying to go to the grocery store. We've learned to make personal risk assessments in the face of an unknown virus. Today, I will be getting on an airplane for the first time since March 2020, flying to FinCon down in Austin. We've had vaccines; the economies are opening up, but there's shortages. LaPro and I are in the midst of a remodel in our house in Tucson. We recently ordered some tile that's being sent from Italy because they didn't have any at the U.S. warehouse. Ten weeks wait time. I'm assuming we'll move back into our house in January without kitchen tiles. It just won't show up. You can look across many, many different industries and see shortages. Here locally, there's no large soda cups at the local gas station. They've been out for weeks. There's stores in the U.K. where there's no Diet Coke at all. There's been a well-reported semiconductor shortage. Toyota has cut production in September by 40% because they couldn't get enough parts for their cars. Where are all these things, these items that are missing? Roxanne Thomas is head of logistics at Gerber Plumbing Fixtures. She says her faucets, sinks, toilets are in Shanghai. Some are in Vancouver. Some are buried at a rail yard in Chicago. She says it'll be a year and a half before things truly get back to normal, and that they're constantly fighting this battle between how much to spend and how many containers can they get to get their goods from overseas. But it's causing this supply chain crisis, where there's been a significant increase in the demand for goods. There are 25 million container ships moving cargo across the oceans. It takes two to three years to build a new one. In the LA and Long Beach ports, they've seen 860,000 inbound containers arrive on average each month in 2021. That's 24% more than the typical monthly volume over the previous five years leading up to the pandemic. Right now, there are 65 ships at anchor or in drift areas waiting to be unloaded. Not enough workers, not enough slots. The average wait time to unload a ship is 8.7 days, two and a half days longer than last month. We've seen panic ordering by retailers because if you don't know if your stuff's going to show up, you order more of it. And there's also been more online shopping, which means more imports are coming. Imports from Asia have increased 36% year over year. China is the leading supplier of these imports to the U.S., but India has seen their exports to the U.S. increase 76% year over year. Vietnam, a 52% increase. There's also been some spillover effects. In late March, a cargo ship was stuck for weeks in the Suez Canal, and 12% of the world's trade goes through there. There have been shutdowns at Chinese ports due to COVID cases. There's been freak typhoons that have disrupted shipping. There's also been staff shortages, social distancing measures, which has made it more difficult for those that work at ports or warehouses. There's been travel restrictions, which have made it more difficult for crews to get to container ships. All this has combined to dramatically increase the cost of shipping goods. Prior to the pandemic, The cost to ship a 40-foot container from Asia to the U.S. was about $2,000. Now it's $16,000. And if you want to pay a premium for on-time delivery, if you can get it, it's $25,000. Wade McQuellen, who's the chief executive officer at Joanne Fabric, said, Sometimes the ocean freight is actually more expensive than the cost of the product. They're paying 10 times more now for shipping than they ever have. Then you've had challenges with the rail system. Canadian wildfires disrupted rail operations in Canada, bringing down timber. Union Pacific had so many containers stuck at their Chicago rail yard, they were completely overwhelmed. We don't know how long this will last. It will have an impact on inflation. Consumer price index was already up over 5% year over year. But now, with the cost of shipping is so much greater, it's likely to be passed on in higher good prices. Now, this could be another year and a half or more, like Roxanne Thomas suggested. But we don't know. Stephen Blitz, he's the chief U.S. economist at T.S. Lombard, said, There is no more transitory price than transportation, because the capacity can expand and shrink. But the ships, the container ships, are already running at full capacity as are the ports, and it takes two to three years to bring a new ship online. Bloomberg's Brendan Murray summed it up really well, and this was a theme that we discussed back in episode 323, the economy is not a machine. He wrote, the system underpinning globalization, production on one side of the planet, connected to consumers on the other by trucks, ships, planes, cranes, and forklifts, is too rigid, to absorb today's rolling tremors from COVID-19, or to recover quickly from jolts to consumer demand or the labor force. It's avoided a complete collapse only through a combination of human ingenuity, painfully long hours, strategy mixed with a stroke of luck. The system was over-optimized. There was not sufficient slack. And when you had a spike of demand, impacts on transportation supply, the global supply chain, it almost broke. And we have shortages of everything that is feeding in to higher inflation. Now, while there's a shortage of goods, there's also a shortage of employees. In the most recent release for July, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports there are 10.9 million job openings, the most ever. The job opening rate which is the percent of open jobs divided by the total filled and open jobs, it's at 6.9%, the highest in decades. The previous high I saw was in January 2019 of 4.7%. The number of layoffs from companies is the lowest in decades. (laughs) They don't want to lose their workers. And it isn't just lower paid workers. Job openings for business professionals is the highest ever going back to 2002. And here's what's interesting. The job quit rate is the highest, also going back to at least 2002. More people are quitting their jobs. More jobs are hard to fill. If you go to a restaurant, oftentimes they've had to close because they don't have enough workers. I think I mentioned a couple of months ago, we went to a sushi restaurant, a Japanese restaurant and couldn't order any of the entrees because they didn't have a chef. They only had a a sushi chef. If we look at the participation rate in the U.S. and the job force, only 61.6% of individuals over 16 are working. That's down from 63.4% in January 2020. There are 4.5 million fewer employed workers today than there were in February 2020. And companies are saying that the jobs are hardest to fill than they have been since at least 2001. Why aren't there enough workers? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Why aren't there enough workers? There's a number of reasons. Partly, it's due to child care cost. There isn't enough child care available. Eight in 10 providers of daycare said they've had staffing problems and they've had to reduce their hours. Half said they are serving fewer children because of hiring problems. You also have safety issues. Claire Miller, who's, who's the director of Children and Youth Services in Decatur, Georgia, said the only thing we haven't done is sandwich boards and standing on the corner with a spinning sign, but I'm not eliminating that yet. They've increased their wages by $2 an hour, asked parents for referrals, offered college students internship credits. They've been unable to get enough people. The YMCA in San Antonio, Texas, has 200 children on their wait list for childcare because of hiring. And the problem is, unlike other businesses although all businesses struggle with this, if you can't get workers, you have to pay more. But childcare is different, as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently stated, the free market works well in many different sectors, but childcare is not one of them. Those who provide child care aren't paid well, and many who need it can't afford it. The U.S. Treasury reports that more than 60% of families already pay more for child care than they can afford. And if you can't find a place for your child to be watched, if you're trying to get back to work, well, you don't go back to work. Other workers haven't returned because, for health reasons, they're afraid of the Delta variant. There are also many people that haven't needed to go back to work because of different stimulus programs, expanded unemployment benefits. Those expanded unemployment benefits recently ended, and surprisingly, companies are reporting they've not seen an uptick in job applicants. There are still many, many millions of people that are unwilling to return to the workforce. Many of them have had higher savings because of the stimulus checks. Each individual in the U.S. between April 2020 and March 2021 got $3,000 just in stimulus check. And if you have a number of people in your family, that can add up, especially if you're used to living on much lower wages. Those stimulus and expanded unemployment benefits helped keep many more Americans out of poverty during the pandemic. The Census Bureau reported that the median household income before any type of transfer payments was $67,521 in 2020, down 2.9%. Real median earnings also fell 1.2%, and the official poverty rate increased by one percentage point to 11.4%. But if we look at a supplemental poverty measure that includes these transfer payments, the stimulus, the unemployment benefits, it showed that the poverty rate, the supplemental poverty rate, fell to 9.1% in 2020, 2.6 percentage points lower. So the stimulus and the other programs helped. But even with those benefits ending, at least yet, we've not seen a return to the workforce. Richard Walquist, who's president of the American Staffing Association, said people who have been on the sidelines have, by and large, stayed on the sidelines. Some thinks it'll be several months before you see people flow back into the workforce. But there are some that are deliberately staying out. In China, there's been this protest of those generally younger workers of lying flat, refusing to participate in jobs where they feel like they're overworked, working too many hours. You've seen individuals in the U.S., most of them highly educated, participating in the lying flat movement, not wanting to work, taking time to figure out maybe they want a different career, something more rewarding. Given the profound impact of the pandemic, of the lengthened shutdown, it's understandable to want to reflect and think, maybe I don't want to go back to what may be considered a dead-end job. Maybe I don't want to go back to a work schedule where I have no control over it. There are some workers that would rather participate in the gig economy rather than go back to fast food because at least they have more control over their schedule, especially if they're having trouble finding childcare. This labor shortage is also feeding into higher inflation. There's a very tight correlation between changes in the U.S. Consumer Price Index and wage growth. Going back to 1965, the average consumer price index year to year change was 3.9%. And the average year to year change in weekly earnings for production and non supervisory workers was also 3.9%. You can look at a graph and you can see they tend to follow each other very closely. The average hourly earnings for leisure and hospitality workers, where there's been an incredible worker shortage, is at a double-digit annual pace. Higher wages lead into higher rent for apartments because people can afford more and pay more. We've seen the surge in housing prices, and that leads to an increase in what individuals believe they could rent their house for. All of that, those shelter costs, feed into core inflation. It's all led to an incredibly fascinating period of shortages of things And shortages of workers, both of which are feeding into higher inflation, which doesn't necessarily look like it's too transitory. Real disposable income, so income after paying taxes, after adjusted for inflation is negative year over year. Inflation is certainly caused by an increase in the money supply. And we've definitely seen that over a 20% increase in the money supply in the U.S., since the pandemic began, but it's also due to capacity constraints. The constraints on capacity, the production capacity, services capacity, transportation capacity is the highest it's been in decades. There was a lack of slack in the system. And when the system came back on, there are capacity constraints. Worker shortages, even though some workers, they just don't want to return. Where does that see us from interest rates? Does the bond market reflect the current inflation? No. We still have very, very low interest rates, which means even though we're paying more for goods and services, our earnings, at least our income oriented earnings, are falling short. It makes for a credibly challenging time if you're a retiree trying to live off of your investment portfolio. I have repeated. Numerous times, we should own real things, things that can protect us against rising inflation, be it land, rental real estate, gold. All those things have actually done better than inflation. Gold, not necessarily this year, but if we look at over the past three years, land, real estate, gold, even cryptocurrency, art, have all significantly outpaced inflation. What hasn't is interest rates don't reflect it yet. And maybe that's the ongoing purchases by central banks of uh, treasury bonds or the bond market believes inflation is transient. And hopefully it is. We don't want to live in a high inflation environment, but we're living in one now. And everything is set up for higher inflation. Significantly increased money supply, significant capacity constraints, shortages of items, and workers? We'll see. When we look at what happened to the American chestnut, entirely wiped out, the ecosystem changed permanently. Could it be that the pandemic has had such a huge impact that things are permanently changed? Attitudes of workers, demand, global supply chains. We'll see in the weeks and months and years ahead. In the meantime, I reiterate, like I did in that episode earlier this year on why do we work so much, is we should build slack into our own lives, build in more leisure as individuals, build in more downtime if we're running a business to catch up. I couldn't find the quote, but it was a shipping executive that basically said, stop ordering so much stuff. People and businesses are going to have to stop ordering so many things in order for the shipping system to get caught up. We need to build in that slack to allow time to catch up and then just to be more flexible when something unexpected happens, like we're seeing today. That's episode 359. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly, the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week. To that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. PLUS membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. you also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Restless Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.